this is Fiona, one of the co-hosts of the DMs Book Club, a weekly book club podcast where we read about some Dungeons and & Dragons and discuss how we might include them in our role-playing campaigns. In this episode, I interviewed Ajit George, the Director of Operations of Shanti Bhavan's Children's Project, an international non-profit organisation based in Bangalore, India, that provides free education to socially disadvantaged children. Ajit is also a game designer, diversity consultant and activist in the gaming community having written for a variety of indie game companies, including Bully Pulpit Games and Monty Cook. Ajit is probably best known in the tabletop RPG industry for his role as the creator, co-lead designer and author of the Dungeons & Dragons one-shot anthology Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, the first anthology of D&D adventures to be written entirely by black and brown authors. In the heart of the ethereal plane lies an ancient and mysterious city called the Radiant Citadel. Through tradition, cooperation and ancestral magic, 15 civilizations are bound to this wondrous site. Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel is an anthology of exciting adventures that explore the cultures and myths of these realms. I love this book. It's been one of my big highlights of this year to read. It's beautiful, the setting is so evocative, and the adventures in it feel so different to anything else I've read before. I was incredibly honoured and a bit overwhelmed that I got to talk to Ajit about his work on this book and how much it inspired me as a DM. So please, if you haven't got your copy yet, go and get it and run it for your tables immediately. You won't be disappointed. You can find links to Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel and Ajit's other work in this episode show notes. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy. So we'll just start just straight off really nice and chill. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Hi, I am Anja George. In my full-time job, I am Director of Operations for the Shanti Bhavan Children's Project, which is an education and poverty alleviation nonprofit based in India. But in the world of games, I have been a writer, a designer, and particularly an advocate for people of color within gaming spaces for for opportunities for them, um, you know, upward mobility in terms of jobs and positions, but just also just representation for people of color in games. Exactly. And you have such an incredible list of credits to your name. I was going through them like when I was doing my research for this interview and instantly I saw The Warren, Bully Pulpit Games, which is one of my, uh, yes. one of my yeah. favorite games. I was like, oh, that's great. And obviously working for a couple of Monty Cook games as well, I saw. So I guess we'll start right at the beginning. How did you get into role-playing games? So that would have been my mom. <laughs> she is really hilarious, but, you know, she bought me the original, um, or not the original, but one of the early edition of D&D, the Red Box uh, set for uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I must have been second grade, first grade, something like that. It was relatively young. And just looking even at the cover of this box, this Red Box, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is so prevalent now, but at the time it was just this new and novel thing and so weird and different, particularly for an Indian kid growing up in the U.S. with traditional parents. It was so outside of like my normal experiences. And it kind of hit me with this, this sense of wonder and um, amazement. And I got really into it, but I didn't have a lot of people to play with. So yeah. I think I put it aside for a while and then I started really playing in high school and my high school biology teacher of all people is the one who ran a four-year campaign for a bunch of us wow. uh, which was magnificent and, and a little transcendent to be honest yeah. uh, awoke a, a storytelling side to me and a, and a, a side of imagination and creativity and I, I loved it 
do you have a particular favorite genre at all? Like obviously I know D D is obviously traditionally sort of high fantasy, but do you prefer like horror? Do you prefer maybe sci-fi? Like I'm guessing because obviously your your credits, your RPG credits obviously span quite a few different uh, game systems. I didn't know if you had a particular favorite yeah. genre you like to write for or like to play in. High fantasy obviously is something that is that's really interesting to me. And I think probably the next would be you know, modern gothic horror in the vein of like a world of darkness, um, vampire, yeah. and all of those games that are associated with it, including games that are not gothic horror, like Changeling the Dreaming, um, mm -hmm. is very much not gothic horror, but beautiful and tragic, um, yes. and gorgeous. And so, uh, I, I, I very much, I think those, those two games, I think those two systems, Dungeons and Dragons and World of Darkness were have been my two great loves mm -hmm. um, as RPGs over the over the many years. Are you typically uh, like a forever DM then, or do you get chance to play every so often and or play more often than than you run games? Uh, yeah, these days I barely get to play, oh, um, no. and I haven't run a game in forever. Fiona, um, <gasps> it's it's a it's a very strange place. As I think. As you become more immersed in the professional side of games, mm. I find that at least some of some of those in my circles are playing less than they might have when they first came to RPGs, where mm -hmm. their entire focus was playing. Now a lot of my focus is on writing or, or working on games or working to advocate for people of color in, in different mediums, mm -hmm. um, like networking events or so on and so forth. Well, what a shame. But at the same time, I, it's still... Uh... <laughs> It's still, yeah, you're still part of it and you're still doing so much work for it. So let's just get straight into it then. So for those people who've been completely like oblivious and living under a rock, could you tell us what is Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel and why does it sort of stand out from, say, traditional uh, or even just normal D&D source books or anthologies? Yeah, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel is an adventure anthology put out by Wizards of the Coast for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. And... It is one of the newest books in their line. It has a lot of important firsts to it. The primary being it is the first Dungeons & Dragons book in D&D's nearly 50-year history mm -hmm. to be written entirely by people of color. 16 writers, including myself, worked on this book. It is also the first D&D book to be led by a person of color, uh, namely myself, mm -hmm. um, and it is the first D&D book to have both the cover artist and the alternate cover artist both be women, women of color. Mm -hmm. um, and then overall, 50 people of color worked on this book from editor positions to artists to consultants to designers. And that is also certainly a first for Dungeons and Dragons. It may very well be a first for all TTRPGs. And it's possible, short of, short of like maybe a like a triple A game by like Rockstar where you've got 300, 400 people working on it and then maybe 50 people happen to be people of color. Yeah. It, it may actually be uh, among the first and even in the larger scheme of like, you know, RPGs to have that many people of color, at least for a US-based uh, game. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, quite, it's quite unique in many categories. It's also the first real new material in terms of new setting material that Dungeons and Dragons has done in fifth edition. And it is, that is not previously attached to some IP, whether the critical role IP or the magic IP, this is the first completely brand new material created specifically for fifth edition. In many ways, it's the first new material in, in many years put out by, setting material put out by Dungeons and Dragons. So in that way, it's also first and, and very fresh and new. 
and I'll just start off by saying I absolutely love it <laughs> as a result. And so I'm so glad that I get a chance to talk to you and just say how much, because as soon as I obviously saw the artwork, I was like, oh my God, I'm already in. And then seeing you in the videos describing about it and saying, how different it was to what we've had previously and you know and this is no dismissal of it of previous Wizard of Coast products but so, there's something about the way you were describing this sort of UN style sort of uh, Radiant Citadel just there and then connected to all these different realms that were so different and had so much life that was nothing I'd ever seen before or read before in D&D and I just knew that as soon as I you know I, I had to have a copy of the book to read it and it's just been an absolute joy to read for it and actually play some of the one shots as well. So where did the sort of initial idea for the Radiant Citadel come about for you then? The book itself, it, the idea came from, um, you know, my work on Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and um, really loving working on the Indian uh, inspired material, which was also brand new to, to Ravenloft and to D&D. And I, I really wanted to do something more with it and expand that. I, I just had this vision in my head of an entire book like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so... After I wrapped up my work on on Ravenloft, and I um, I wasn't going to be traveling for a while because of the pandemic, um, I realized this was like an opportunity to try to make a book like this come to fruition. I pitched it to Jeremy Crawford, who is one of the two principals for Dungeons and Dragons. He's one of the two game architects, along with Chris Perkins and Wes Snyder, who was the lead for Ravenloft. And my surprise, they they were resoundingly <laughs> positive and uh, not only accepted my idea but asked me to be a co-lead, which I just didn't think was po was possible because I'm, I'm not a full-time employee for Wizards of the Coast. Sure. Um, and, and I guess that's also another first in that I'm an outside consultant leading a D&D book, which is mm. which is also very unique, and somebody pitching an idea outside of D&D for D&D. And I think the, the last time was um, Eberron. Eberron, So it's yeah. been a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how the actual book came to existence. For the Radiant Citadel itself, that was a process of... Um, reading and kind of immersing myself in the works of all the other writers. I knew we needed some kind of way to link all the pieces together. In that way, it was going to be a little like Candlekeep mm. um, in Candlekeep Mysteries. Um, but I wanted something very, a sense of a place of wonder and uniqueness and something that was hopeful and, and more positive than a lot of what you see in D&D, &D, um, mm -hmm. a place of respite. And I think that was really informed deeply by um, the times that we live in. I strongly believe that art is informed by the circumstances of the, the climate of society, of the individual obviously creating it. Um, and so it was drawing on a lot of things in my personal life and in what was happening in the world around me, um, but also deeply informed by the works of everyone that I was I was reading. I haven't actually said this anywhere else, so this would definitely be a first. A lot of people have speculated that like, okay, this is like, the Radio Citadel is like Deep Space Nine or um, like... Babylon 5, I, mm. they've had so many different theories. And, and I, I think there was also Mass Effect was another one. And mm. I was like, I haven't played, I actually haven't played Mass Effect. <laughs> so I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you're Though, like, I yes. mean, I, I'm familiar with the game. But I was yeah. like, yes. I, you just I thought about, yeah, sure. <laughs> I actually was like, you know what, you can, you all can run with this. And that sounds yeah. great. But I, uh, that's actually <laughs> not where I'm coming from. So Mass Effect, I've never played. I have never watched Babylon 5. And I have never watched Deep Space Nine. My oh. nerd credits are terrible right now. Oh, no. Everybody's going to be <laughs> yeah, gasping. Um, I, I've watched a lot of Star Trek, just not Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I just haven't been able to get into it. To be honest, it came in many ways from, or was it partially inspired by me thinking about the Belter dream in The Expanse and how the Belters uh, wanted um, a, yes. a place of their own. And the really wide Expanse comes to mind in many ways is 
it was the first piece of science fiction where I saw people of color unabashedly centered um, throughout the story. And when other cultures or other sci-fi pieces talk about these multicultural or these like ethnic diverse cultures, it didn't, it never resonated because it was actually usually white people that, that were centered. The Expanse was very much about centering uh, people of color. And the Belters were really about, you know, trying to create a place where they could live in peace, but other cultures, maybe the Earthers and the Martians could also live together. And, and so the genesis of this is sort of the ideal state if the, the Belters had gotten their way and they were able to work together with the Martians and the, the Earthers to have like this can be a home world that they all live together. So that's the true genesis. And I've never really talked about that. I want I want to do a thread on it, but I just haven't had a chance to talk about it. Oh, well, you're going to have to, because yet yeah, The Expanse is such an incredible, obviously, I know, set of books, but also the TV show is astounding and it's visually impressive as yeah. well as some great performances. God, I'm going to have to go back and watch that now. But yeah, I totally see yeah, those inspirations it, it, as well. It's mesmerizing to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, love, I love the TV series and it's, it was very important to me and I was watching a lot of it while I was working on Radiant Set It All. And it's actually a really good role-playing game as well. I've had a chance to play through a few bits of that. And again, it's a very different uh, side to that in terms of mechanics and stuff. But yeah, really enjoyed that. Like for me, I definitely thought, ah, Deep Space Nine when I when I read it. But it's obviously so much more than that. And my other question really was, did you always plan to have the number of writers that you did? Because obviously you've got 16 in total, including yourself. But you've left it open to have obviously DMs to come up with their own planes of existence and stuff. Was it always going to be set at 16? Did you plan to have more, less? What was the, what's the thought? We, we, thought we talked about more. You know, there was, there was certain limitations in terms of our page count, right? So we had, to, we had to keep to a specific number of pages. And that would also determine the size of adventures. And if we had more writers on it, that would have also limited um, the adventures would have gotten had to get shorter. I know people wanted longer adventures in places and other people are like, oh man, I could have used another 30 pages of setting of material around the rain instead of all. And I, I hear you and feel the same way. Uh, but also as the lead on it, that was a struggle for me to make a decision about Mm. Am I centering myself in my own writing or am I centering um, my writers and their writing? And sure. the ultimate decision was, while the book's name Radiant Citadel is in the title, it does say journeys through the Radiant Citadel, meaning it's not really about mm -hmm. the, the Radiant Citadel. It's about the places you go through to, you know, from the Radiant Citadel. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to center the other cultures and the, and the other writers and so I think my page count is actually among among the shortest of, of all of it. And that was that was a conscious decision. Um, I easily, you know, I, I think there's easily a source book entirely around the Radiant Citadel, and that would have been a lot of fun to write, but that wasn't this book. No, no. And yeah, I think what I love about the Radiant Citadel as well, because again, the way you've described it is obviously incredibly beautiful, but there's so much, like, I definitely was like, I need to know more about this amazing place. But I think what you've done, in, in, like, and again, it's an absolute kudos to, to your writing and then obviously the editors and stuff, but you've left it so that there are bits of interest, which obviously then the DMs can go off forth and, and make their own stories out of it. Whereas maybe in other places, like there's already been expanded history. I'm thinking now of like Rock of Brawl from Spelljammer. There's, there's loads of stuff on that. But here is like, it's so different, those two places, you know, as sort of hubs of activity. And I was just like, yeah, yeah Radio Citadel every single time. That's what I'm going to, you know, as soon as they pop to another place of hub, it's not Sigil, it's not Rock of Brow, it's going to be Radiant Citadel because it's more interesting. You've got like the idea of the, the way the government is and obviously the, the healing stuff. There's, it's just so, 
like you said, I know you've mentioned this in a couple of other interviews, this idea of hope punk. And it's the first time I've actually come across that term. And I was like, yeah, I actually really like that as this idea that we are wanting positive change. And why not just have that without, any, yeah, I know there's, you've said like, oh, there could be like, maybe if you want like a, a hidden agenda, there's something maybe not so right, but I don't want that. I want to have a really nice place that my players can go to and there's no hidden agenda at all and then they can go off on other adventures as respites. So yeah, just everything about that Radiance Hotel, just, it just feels like I want my players to come visit here and, and have a really good time and, and for it. So Yeah, I, I love that you said that, uh, Fiona. I think, you know, with the Radiance Hotel, it was an enormous challenge to, to fit in everything I wanted with the vision in a short page count and then to create enough hooks, um, and this is something Wes and I talked a lot about with, with our writers, my red lines are very extensive. It's like, great, you've got this, but you need to give another a hook or another mm-hmm. imaginative piece. Um, and if you read through most of the paragraphs in the Radiant Citadel, I think there's a push point in almost every end of every paragraph where it's like, oh, oh, cool, I could do something with this. Like I could, I have this paragraph and it asks, it ends with almost a question or an element that's confusing or interesting. I can, I can riff off of that. Mm-hmm. And that, that has to be my trust to the readers that they would use this as seeds for their fertile imagination. And this is also, I mean, weirdly my own kind of like my own take from a player or a reader where you know, you read deeply about something and um, you're like, when it's over-explained, you're like, oh man, that's actually kind of disappointing. It's, it was like so much cooler, like two paragraphs ago yeah, until yeah. you went on to all this stuff. And, <laughs> you know, part of the magic being a, being a writer is like, okay, you know what? I'm going to put just enough seeds that your fertile and amazing imagination is going to take them places that I would have never guessed. Yeah. And I've seen really amazing people, t- you know, really amazing takes in the radiance that are like, oh, that's wild. Like, I would never have gone in that direction, but I love that you've love gone that. in that direction. I also think it's been really interesting to see how, you know, positively certain people have taken it and that some challenges others have had. And I kind of love that you, you're really digging the radiance citadel because what I've noticed is some of the hardest pushback have come from white men who are like, oh, this needs to, there's needs to be more conflict and I need more fighting and I need more details. I need, I need all the details about every single like nook and cranny and I need all the, all the fighting and all the conflict and more. And I've seen more women, more people from the LGBTQ community go like, hey, this is beautiful. Yep. It's kind of like, like, I love that this is, can be like my home. I can value this place. I can desire to fight to protect it if there's things, problems outside and there's enough there's enough challenges that they're, they're, just, they're not obvious challenges. Maybe they're yeah. sociopolitical challenges or, or other yeah. things. And there's easy to make some external conflicts for the place as well. But I do notice that where the strongest positive responses have been from women, other people of color, um, the LGBT community. And I think maybe that speaks to things that we ourselves desire um, and that the way we think about friction and the way we think about environments and what we prioritize and, and it's been really interesting to see that you know dichotomy of like yeah. who's criticizing it and who's loving it uh, because it's it's a very stark difference that i that i've noticed again and again and again as a tally that is quite interesting and i hope that then that is an indicator not just for wizards but all rpgs because like like you said it's such a big milestone i don't think any other rpg book has done ex- exactly what you said like it's been led by a majority person of color team so i'm hoping now that people are like oh so in this space it's not just 
white men, straight white men, cis men, just just playing their war games. We have room at the table for people of disabilities, people of colour, people from LGBT, women, to run these games, have these games, tell their own stories and stuff. Yeah, I think hopefully The Radiant Citadel is merely just the first step for not just fifth edition books or D&D in general, but for all sort of RPGs. There obviously is a thriving indie tabletop community, which I know you've been a part of as well. And I know that you have done a slight expansion, Journeys Beyond the Radiant Citadel. Is that extra stuff you didn't manage to put in the book or was that extra carry on writing? We'll we'll put some more stuff in because I really enjoyed that. But I found that I was like, oh, yeah, my role in with that was pretty limited, but uh, it was the writers who really wanted to expand their sections yes. and, and talk more about it. And they, they did a wonderful job. It's a great addition to the core book. And if there's one DM skill product that I would strongly recommend, that's the one, though there are a few others that are really, really thoughtfully done. Mm-hmm. But but kind of to return back to what we were talking about in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, ways of thinking about things differently um, and how we need more, more women or more people of color um, kind of focusing on it. One of the other criticisms, this once again was, it's really easy to like notice where the criticism is coming from. And it's of course. from white men. Um, we're like, oh yeah, there's just another festival at the beginning of this, starting of this adventure. And I was like, oh, you all have dealt with 50 years of starting in a tavern and never talked <laughs> about it, right? Like how, how many, how many, how many adventures start off in a tavern um, yep. and we don't think about it. Yeah. And I think to flatten it and just say it's another festival is to not really understand the nuance and complexity of people of color, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's almost like saying, oh, Christmas is the same as Halloween, which is the same as Diwali, which is the same as, you know, Ramadan. Yeah. Like, it's like, those are really different uh, events. Yeah. Like the structure is, you could say that they're holidays or festivals, but that word does not encompass mm-hmm. the complexity of each of these events. All of the people of color that are working on it, especially the ones obviously centered festivals as a start or centered around their adventure was like, this festival really means something to my culture. And this is a, an entry point or a gateway to understanding very easily and immediately the new culture that you're entering, right? And, and, it, and it allows you. But those festivals are pretty different from yeah. adventure to venture. And it does take a, maybe a, a more than a superficial reading to understand that. But I think taking the time and effort, I think they add a hell of a lot more diversity than your, you know, ye old uh, tavern that you get or, um, you know, the, the the quest that comes from like, you know, um, princess in distress or something yeah. like that. Right. These are these are very much more thoughtful in that regard. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, again, I was aware that it was uh, the festivals, but they always have, they're not just tacked on. Like, a pub is always tacked on, right? Whereas these ones, you had, you know, trials, you have, you know, you have to partake in them in order to get not only the, the setting, the feeling of the setting as well, but also, you know, it helps with the adventure. You get information, you know, in the in the, in the first one, the Salt of the Legacy, you know, you have to get the renown and respect. So you got to take part in the sort of that sort of festival sort of Games, challenges yeah. there. Yeah. So one of my favorites was is the uh, oh, apologies I can't remember the, the title of the adventure now the one where we um, you have that full week where there's, uh, there's the curfew is lifted and you're just celebrating the sort of the the night sky and the, and the oh yeah a shadow of the sun yeah yeah that's, and that, that's yes. actually based off an, an Iranian uh, festival that banishes darkness and um, it was funny because I was just over at Justice's house the writer of that just a few days ago and we were literally just talking about the festival <laughs> um, and what it meant to the Iranian culture yeah it's a very important one but it very much links to the culture mm-hmm. um same with the night of the remembered it's you know um yes. based off of the day of the dead for you know and the Mexican holiday and or the Mexican festival and it's very 
integral to the culture and the people and the way they think about the dead and how they remember the dead and Mm -hmm. what what the dead have in relationship to the living which is a theme that runs through the entire adventure Mm -hmm. so being like oh it's so much more complex and more deep than than a pub that just happens to be like oh you run into a pub great oh a pub innkeeper gives you an adventure great great yeah Uh, (laughs) but as well like i feel like quite a number of or quite a number of the adventures in in this book sure there is combat and i know for some people that's you know that's what they want out of their adventures and that's how they play their dnd but i feel sometimes obviously there's several layers each very different in each story. So, for example, uh, one of the later ones, there's obviously a lot of political intrigue. Um, can't, again, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but you appear in the middle of an opera house to confront the villain or that sort of thing, because there's always different political things and you're trying to work out. And again, with the Shadow of the Sun one, again, there's that huge sort of the different political structures. They sort of vary between each of the, the realms. And it's just so different than the normal sort of like it's a king and a castle and that's your political system. So it was actually quite a joy to go, ah, oh, these systems are different. And how would players who may not be aware of them or not have lived underneath systems before, how did they interact with it? How did they play with it? And I just, yeah, I just thought this instantly was more and more ideas about how I would run these games and stuff. And that's what I love about this book is that as soon as I read it, I go, how would I run this? Oh, I could do this and I could do this. And that, and I know, I assume that's what you want. But I assume that's what you want. You want people to go take it and run yeah. and do their own games and stuff. So We absolutely want people to interpret different ways. We're very open-ended about it. The writers have been very supportive. We're like, we would rather you try and, and experiment with these cultures and, and get it wrong and it's okay and make mistakes. Yeah. It's fine. But enjoy and indulge and just see where it takes you. And I think you're right in that, like, it is very fresh and very different in that a lot of old school D&D feels purely escapist. And this is purely fantasy. And there's nothing else beyond like the fantasy element of it, which is fine on one level. But um, an old writing teacher of mine once said that like, escapist fantasy purely for the sake of escapist fantasy uh, can end up being a little bit like propaganda. And what I think he meant was uh, the, the old kind of Roman Circus and bread, where the masses are distracted from their problems and hide from their problems by being inter- purely entertained. They're forced not to think when they're being entertained. Their brain is like switched off so they can only just be entertained. Mm-hmm. And that can be great in small doses when you're just the stress of life is too much and you just need some little bit of escape. But I also think there's lots of room for thoughtful engagement. And, you know, Justice is a great example. You, you brought that up about the political factions, right? Mm-hmm. He's been, he's a little bit a little circumspect about the motivations behind it, but he's gotten a little more open since the, the Iranian revolutions. And he's been a lot more outspoken mm-hmm. about criticisms about the government is that it really was his take on modern day Iran and the West's perception of the people, right? So like the West is like, oh, you all are theocratic, like nut jobs. And actually the people are are not that. And they're no. they're not all like not behind the all. Ayatollah. And then, you know, at the time he was weighing the complexities of like the Ayatollah's regime. And is that good or is that bad? And he was trying to be very careful of like not condemning it because it's very easy to condemn it from the outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also have like these revolutionaries who are fighting against it. He talked in a panel recently at BagbatCon about one of the most interesting subversive elements in the adventure. And there's so many like deep cuts with these works that it's, you know, you really have to read deeply to kind of understand what's actually happening. Of course. The better reward for the players is if they side with the theocracy. And that's not obvious immediately, but if you if you side with the theocracy and the angels, 
the last battle is easier and the reward is bigger than if you side with the rebels, the last battle is harder and the reward is smaller. And that's a commentary on power and how it's easier for us to go along mm -hmm. with the power structures in place mm -hmm. than to uh, fight against them. And our reward is often bigger if you, you side with it. Like there are reasons why power structures remain because you're really well rewarded to, to stay in line. Um, you're less rewarded and the, the challenge is stronger if you're not. So there's lots of that kind of stuff in the book. Yes. And it is not necessarily obvious at, at first read, but the more you play with it and the more you think about it, the more we hope that you have great, you do have escape and you have great games, you have a lot of fun, but that there's this something working at the back of your head and making you think about maybe your institutional biases and, and the kind of like elements that you expect. And I think this book in that regard, sets it apart from a lot of other D&D books 100%. in the fierce political commentary and the fierce socio-political commentary. I think the other thing that stands out for me, because I, I, maybe some people would be not scared, but there's always that worry that, well, I don't want to portray a character from a culture that I don't know anything about. And I think one thing you do incredibly well in the book is that you have this sort of bit at the beginning called thoughtful introductions about describing about how you can role play people who live in these realms and stuff. And I know each uh, gazetteer has like questions, like as you would do when you were building your character anyway, but like you've read through the gazetteer, that's amazing. Here's some things you want to think about if you are from this realm. And it you pick up on the, the key points or the each author picks up on the key points from the adventure, from the, the themes that are throughout. And all of it is just so inviting and it's not preachy, which I knew it wouldn't be anyway, but it's just nice to be like, hey, we welcome you. You can take part in our realms. You can be whatever you want. You can be from these realms. And here's how to do it sensitively and in a way to encourage that. And I think we need more and more of that in our games that we can, you know, because we are telling stories and we want to tell different stories and not the same old, as you said, we meet in a tavern. <laughs> it's a lot of white men. <laughs> we go out and save the princess. Yeah. We don't want to do that anymore. We want to experience these things and we should be open to sharing these stories, like treat them with sensitivity and sort of appreciate them, but not appropriate them. I'm really glad that resonated with you, Fiona, and I think that was something that was important to us. But simultaneously, for all of the reasons you outlined, that was definitely part of our of motivation. Course. Yes, but The other part was to alleviate fear from people that are not from those cultures, that it's okay to play with those cultures. Yes. And to say, hey, you don't need our permission, we just want to give you some guidelines, right? You yeah. know, here's some guidelines to think about. And all of the writers very much feel strongly that we would rather you play with our work and make whatever mistakes or, or yes. get it wrong or whatever, but we would rather that happen than you not play with it and you be too scared and you look at it as like a nice museum piece that's put on your yeah. shelf, but you never touch it and interact with it and engage with it. Our works are meant to be engaged with, to be taken apart, to be to be remashed, um, to have different you know interpretations. I think we all love it. And yes. I don't think any of us are particularly worried about it Unless you, you, know, you turn it into some like sexist neo-Nazi piece. And like that's going to yeah, be very then, hard. Then that's these, the line but... drawn, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Some obvious like, some obvious like disclaimers there. But I think sure. by and large, we are, we really want you to, to have fun with this and enjoy it and to live in those worlds that we've built. Was there any particular like challenges, would you say, putting the book together? Was there anything that you found particularly difficult uh, co-leading it at all? Sure. Um, if anything. There might not have been. You might yeah, have been an absolute dream. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it was incredibly challenging. And it was about two years of my life from inception, creating the idea to um, the final, like working with a marketing team and all the marketing meetings. There's some places where I, I certainly can't 
talk about uh, yep. there was some difference of opinions on certain marketing elements, but you know, beyond that, I yep. won't go into further detail. Nope, that's fine. I think the greatest challenge is, I mean, it was an enormous amount of work. It's just, it's just a ton of work. And I was, I was juggling a full-time job on top of this. Right? Of course. So it's, it's two, it's almost like two full-time jobs back to back. And the greatest challenge is also the greatest joy, which is working with so many different personalities. At one point I was managing 20 plus people um, because you had the writers and then you had consultants and, mm-hmm. um, you know, people on the Watsi team that I'm working with, and, you know, you're just struggling a lot and different people have different ideas and you have to work with people's different working styles of course. and really harmonizing and making that work. I also think that there's, there's interesting challenges with working within a specific parameter of an expected 220 page D&D book with, mm-hmm. with no leeway for it to be longer. Yeah. And, um, you know, and people don't realize that the D&D books can't just add one more page. It, it has to go by <laughs> like, by a chunk. It's like, I think it's like 30 page increments or something like that. Oh, right. Really? Wow. So, um, yeah, if you look at any D&D book, they're all within three or four different categories of page counts and they're all like separated by like 20 or 30 pages, right? They're either 220 or like 246 or 250 or something oh, like that. I'll have to check my collection book. now and, and count all yeah, and see. <laughs> yeah. There's also been a switchover since Candlekeep. Before that, um, the, the font size was smaller and Candlekeep was the first book that they had a larger font size. So the page count starts switching at that time. Right, of course. But every yeah. book from Candlekeep onwards fits into a certain page count. Right. Oh, and so okay. there's there's a lot of interesting um it maybe it's not interesting to to the, the casual like reader but it's mm-hmm. interesting to people who are wonky and like you know the mechanics <laughs> of how books are put together yeah. there are a lot of interesting challenges there mm-hmm. i think you know part of it is just also i think that you know the other great challenge is like there was weight there was weight to this book mm-hmm. the weight to the to the idea that this is the first book of its kind. Yeah. That there were so many people of color hoping for a book that like this to exist, mm-hmm. hoping and hoping we would get it right when it was announced. Um, so many writers have fears about how their own communities and, and people from their culture would take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a sense of like we were doing something important. Yes. Um, that we were doing something historical. That we, in the moment we realized the weight and gravity of the work we were doing. And with that came a lot of fear and anxiety around working on this book because we didn't want to get it wrong. Um, we wanted to do justice. Um, there's, so there's a lot of intensity of emotion around it. Um, and also fear that like if we failed at any point, you know, Wizards of the Coast would have shelved the book. I think the the former ex-producer, uh, executive producer of D&D, Ray Winninger, talks about books coming to fruition, ideas being gestated for books, but then like, it never fully materializing and that they actually shelved projects. And I know that that they, they have in the past shelved books that like for whatever reason didn't come together, didn't make sense, didn't work. And I knew that if we were not able to do it right under the te- deadlines and timelines we had, because we had very tight deadlines, mm. very tight, tight, tight timelines, and we had an expanded timeline, but for our mother books, but it was still a very tight mm. work that the book would get shelved and would never see the light of day. And you and I would never be having this conversation. Um, <laughs> and and as, as the co-lead of that, I had an incredible level of like weight on my shoulders around that. And so it was, there was a lot to emotionally juggle and, and a lot to logistically juggle and a lot to just to manage as a lead. I could only emphasize about that. And I, I'm so glad 
that all that hard work and all that effort has, has led to us chatting, but also to an incredible book as well. So then the flip side of the coin, which you've kind of mentioned a little bit, what was the bit that sort of filled you with joy? Was there any particular part, like either writing it or I know you're probably going to say like having the book in my hand, because that's what most people say. But was there any part uh, of the process that you were like, oh, my God, it's happening. This is amazing. I think weirdly, when I first got the book in my hands, I was a little numb and a little um I didn't know what to make of it. Of course. My wife had gotten a book. Amusingly, my wife had gotten a book earlier than I did. And the <laughs> reason is that she's um she's the narrative director on a, on a AAA DD video game. And um so her studio got access to the book first mm. or early because they need to take a look at what's being created in DD. So she brought it home one day as a surprise for me. I was <gasps> like, wait, what how did you get this book? Oh. Uh, and, and it was wild. So it was this, this really surreal moment. But I think it was numbing it. I was in kind of shell shock about it. But in terms of like excitement, I can definitely tell you some of the moments of joy were reading first drafts of other writers and being amazed by the worlds and words they had woven um, and just being stunned at their their creativity and talent and just being, wow, this is so good. This is so damn good. And that that was definitely a moment. Another moment was really feeling like the Radiant Citadel was clicking in my head and that like all of the pieces were falling into place and it made sense to me and I and I was like falling in love with that. And I'm I'm my wife is one of those people who like weirdly puts all of the pieces of something in her head and she she's because she it's quite nonverbal at times and she just sees it images and, and so on and so forth and it all kind of coalesces and then she could write really quickly and she just <laughs> outpour of writing in, in a way that I can't do. I think of myself as more like somebody who's like chiseling away at a piece of rock mm-hmm. um, and it is like slowly coming together and slowly being shaped and it takes a long time for me and the writing citadel was like me chiseling at this rock for, for the longest time <laughs> trying to see what would come out of this thing and what shape it would build when it's just a really coalesce I was very excited there was a lot of like joy and excitement there and I think the third moment was when I started seeing the art because I was also yes. in the art review and seeing how good the art was and being amazed by some of the pieces and was like wow you really really nailed it and i was really happy with it so that was kind of exciting but also that brings me to a point of like where you're like oh were you were this challenging or hard one of the hardest moments was seeing there's a few pieces of art that for radiant citadel that got killed oh. and that was killed by me because I was like, oh, this isn't capturing it. Um, one of the biggest challenges was really capturing the Radiant Citadel itself because it's such a weird location. Yeah. And to describe it's like, oh, there's this giant diamond <laughs> floating in the ethereal plane. Right. And wrapped around it is the fossilized remains of this like mythical beast. And out of that fossilized remains, a city has been carved. Oh, by the way, surrounding that are like you know these 15 gemstones that are kind of vehicles for other for things and like the artist is like what in the world have you been smoking what is this crack um and it, it was actually this moment of like that art and other art around the radiant citadel where i realized how getting back to the kind of the tarot scenario mm-hmm. how much fantasy artists have been trained to write and create oh, yes. very generic eurocentric art mm-hmm. and then once you push them out of that boundary how hard it is for them to reconceptualize um and how tricky it is for them to come up with something new because they've been trained by years and decades that eurocentric fantasy art is the way to go and so once you push them out outside of that boundary it becomes a lot harder for them to like build um art that kind of fits the specifications in your vision 
and I must say every single piece of artwork in the Radiant Citadel is so evocative and I'm someone I'm a DM that uses the images so I when I was running through I ran through um, the Invisible Mountain uh, scenario at the end of your book for my players so I was showing them all the pictures of the Tapui the, all these different things and they were like oh my god and I was like look there's loads of images look I'll just share them all so I can only imagine how hard it was in a sense of like I've got all these images in but it's not quite right and then pushing those people and because and, you're so right I think lots of fantasy artwork is so like you said eurocentric it's so white facing as well so to be able to have a book like you said not only that describes these plays in such beautiful detail but also visually display them in such amazing colors and represent them to what the author thinks is incredible and like you said i don't think many books do do that in general and it's so great that it does work for this book as well i think you know trying to share you know i was trying to share art images with the artists and be like hey, you know, the city is cut out of it. It's rock hard architecture, like Indian rock hard architecture, which other cultures, of course, have done, but it's very specific to India too. And mm-hmm. um, getting them to understand that a city was actually carved out of the rock, out of the, the fossilized remains, but it's not it's not planted on top of like an island, right? It's, it's no. not like, it's not buildings on top of an island. It's actually carved right out of it. And then, you know, the fact that it's it's a solar punk and hope punk. So like some of the art was very grim dark. And I was like, no, this does not work. It has to be, there can be darkness around it because that's been, it's an ethereal yeah. plane, but actually it's bright and it's vibrant. It's full of greenery. Um, yes. It's full of like life. You know, there's a lot of plant life and capturing all of those elements was was quite difficult. Um, but on the flip side, something that was weird and evocative that really worked. I love the art for the drought elder um and, yes. and or, or oh, from, so, the good. so that was so good i saw that oh. piece of art was like i was like jumping for joy i was like you nailed it like this is yes. fantastic it's so freaking weird right this a dungeon made out of the desiccated husk of like a godlike being that may oh. or may not know that you exist as you enter it you know yeah. It was, it was it was really great. Yeah, I, I yes, yeah, so I ran my players through that adventure, and then I you know have the music on, etc. And I was like, and you look out the other end, and you realize you're in one part of the body, and they were like, oh, this is awful. And I was like, yeah, but it's great though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it, that was definitely one of my favorite locations to uh, take my players to. It is one of my favorite locations in the buckets. It's just really amazing. What would your big bit of advice to any kind of DM, so obviously a beginner, a veteran, or whatever, who's taken journeys through the Radiant Citadel and is about to run their place through it? What sort of bigger piece of advice would you give them? I think to make it feel real and different from your your standard D and D is to really center it on the people and the small moments with the NPCs and the small moments of, of the culture, right? In the gazetteers, there's a whole write-up about the food and the, and, the, and the drinks and the customs. Really lean into that. And I think in doing leaning into that, you will transport the player from their expected Eurocentric traditional setting to something that is feels fresh, evocative of the culture that, that it's that's located in. They will feel like they understand the people and their mindsets because there's there's definitely in all the gazetteers something about a little bit about their philosophy and the way they think and the way we look at life. You know, most of the gazetteers have a little bit about that. Rooted in that, I think in doing so, you will really transport your players into the liminal space of mm-hmm. the specific adventure. And obviously, if you you decide to link the adventures together, you have a whole campaign that really does root itself in the Radiant Citadel because the Radiant Citadel has all of those cultures. And so you can do these interesting callbacks where you know, the, the people of Akran Sangar, which is from Shadow of the Sun, um, yeah. you know, what is their culture at Akran Sangar where they have to deal with the angels? 
ruling them where but where they're maybe also the right in citadel where they're free mm-hmm. and um you know don't rule under them and there's a little bit of maybe i didn't set up shole to be um a rebel but she's kind of like in opposition <laughs> to yes you know um atash and so you could have oh there's another way of also not stereotyping people right the right in citadel in some ways is is a great opportunity to say and this is the problem I think sometimes with like, you know, white cultures looking at non-white cultures is like, oh, everybody from India is the same. It's like, no, actually, really, we're not. Um, no, very different. Also, <laughs> very, very different, right? And then what are the people like from Ottawa that, that are living in Ottawa versus the people that are from Ottawa that are living in the Radiant City, the people from Akron Sangar? That, that, Akron Sangar is a really perfect one because the governments are so different from the, mm. the people. And so their attitudes are going to be different. And maybe even their religious beliefs are going to be different. And I'm leaning on that. They're like maybe some believe in the Sunweaver and believe in Atash, and others who are at, at the Red right Citadel and, and kind of dealing with Shole remember uh, different religions or different kind of ideas of uh, how to live. And so that's really where I would lean into as yeah. a DM because that, I feel like that brings a lot more richness and thoughtfulness about the book and nuanced complexity to it. Yeah, I forgotten in that sort of thing yeah, that you do have those two leaders in opposition, and it, it is such a beautiful, mm-hmm. like, very tense. And oh yeah, oh that's another story idea. I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I will borrow that for the next game. <laughs> so I will take that. Yeah, it's a really interesting showdown between a solar and, and an ancient brass dragon. You know, and and they're they're both very powerful entities in their own right. You know, not enough room for like complex stat plots, but I definitely have ideas about. You know how they're they're unique characters with with a lot more behind them than the, the traditional stat blocks behind those two, and they're both ancient and they're both powerful and, and they both have very strong visions for, for what the future are, and they are in some ways on a collision course, which yes. could theoretically put the Radiant Citadel in opposition to Akaran Sangar. And what does that mean? What happens to trade? Uh, there's all these rippling implications. Suddenly, like let's say those two two, two cultures come into conflict, and then you know trade collapses between them, but then that has a ripple effect of trade oh. collapsing to other places as well because yeah. things are not coming through and suddenly uh, you know some some of those areas are in crisis because they're not getting food or supplies from mm-hmm. from one of the other 15 it just you have a whole interesting complex yes. um storyline that isn't based around simply like a dragon attacks you know yeah. or a lich comes and attacks you know yeah. it's like yes we can do a lot more than that right I- we, we can we move past the one-on-one arch nemesis uh, yeah. kind of scenario and even that that doesn't involve the players at all which is great like they, they just are a little they could be easily like little, little cogs in that and just be affected by it and then they have to deal with the fallout as well they don't have to be the instigators per se they might do but again it could just be something that you as a dm sort of put in the background for them to realize and to live through as well it could be an interesting one yeah it's an interesting place of where they could live through this just scenario and that that gives you the sense of you know something grander and bigger it could also be that like consequences of actions like maybe they were sent by Shole to do something yes and like they're part of the shield bearers for instance and then they screw up or they do something that breaks like the code of the radiant citadel and that makes Atash mad at them um mm-hmm. and then takes it out on the radiant citadel but the the characters are the ones who started this shit and so they're like oh no now Atash and Shole are at odds oh, have both of them yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah. And so like there's this conflict because the players are like still at the center of things creating this, but like there's a reason why these two groups are already yep. ready and primed to have problems with each other. 
Ajit, well, thank you so much for this amazing talk. I know we could talk about it for hours because, uh, you know, I, I, your passion for the book and uh, me reading the book, I'm going, oh, I want to, I would love to talk to you. So I'm so glad we get to have this. My final, final question is where can we find Radiant Citadel? And do you have any other upcoming projects that you can, can talk about RPG wise or not, or anything else you'd like to plug? And where can we find you on social media if that is something you'd like to plug? Yeah. You can find Journey to the Radiant Citadel pretty much anywhere, your local game store, um, Amazon, um, you know, online, it's pretty easy. So, so just Google Journey to the Radiant Citadel and it'd be easy to find there. I am most easily accessible on Twitter at Ajit George, S-B, that's A-J-I-T-G-E-O-R-G-E-S-B. I post often about RPG stuff or politics or my full-time work as Shanti Bhavan. Um, very easy to find me there. In terms of things that I can plug right now, I just came can. back from an incredible, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The things I can talk about is I, well, I just came back from an incredible uh, World of Darkness LARP. That's why it's sort of in front of mind um, in New Orleans, which is wonderful. And I would recommend, this is not my own stuff, but I would recommend looking at checking out, if you're if you're a LARPer and you enjoy LARPing, check out the stuff I love Reverie Studios and maybe follow what they're doing. And the thing that I, I'm going to be gearing up for next year that is, that is public would be I work with people of color at a big bad con. Yes. Um, if you are, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether you're a person of color or, or from any other community um, or any other group. Big Bad Con is a small con that punches way above its weight in terms of like its impact in, in the industry. Journey to the Radiant Citadel wouldn't exist without it because a lot of the original writers that, that worked on it came from it or were recommended by people that were in attendance in 2019. And we just held um, uh, 2022. There was this great event where we had a bunch of people of color flown in from all around the world and had a huge networking event for them. But I think also if you're just an emerging game designer or writer or designer and you want to find a small con where you can meet a lot of industry professionals, that's actually, you're more likely to like have a chance to talk to top level industry professionals at Big Bad Con in the four days or three days that you're there than uh, four days at Gen Con um, because <laughs> it's much more manageable and a lot, it's just the industry professionals are a lot more accessible. So I would recommend keeping an eye out for Big Bad Con 2023. Beyond that, like my fingers are on a few things, but it's <laughs> you're spinning really so many plates. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 busy, but but fun. But good busy. So <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute uh, joy to interview you, and yeah. I, I can't wait to, I mean, I'm going to reread it again because I, I obviously, I've, I've enjoyed the journey so much and yeah, thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Fiona. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.